Uh, we're going to be taking a look at Revelation 10, uh, 1 through eleven fourteen. So let me, first of all, read the passage, and then we'll open in prayer. Revelation 10, 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever, who created the heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and sea and what is in it, and there, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets." Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten uh, eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. And make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at the hour, at that hour, There was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Uh, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Okay, if you're not totally confused after uh, hearing that read, 
I'll confuse you a little more just by trying to explain it. Uh, the, uh, first of all, uh, it's, it's uh, cha- chapter 10, verses the 1 through 11, 14, passage I just read, is really an interlude. That's why I read the whole thing. It's an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So once again, we get really confused, the first of all, when we start reading it consecutively, like chronologically, as if this trumpet is different from earlier trumpets. So really, what happened in chapter 4 uh, and chapter 7 is still happening in chapter 11. Sometimes you have you know, this different angles, snapshots from different angles, and you've heard uh, enough about that from uh, Pastor Tedrick and me uh, on it. I don't need to, to go any further, but um, in all of these judgments up till now, destruction is restrained. It's always a third, a third of the land, a third of the uh, sky, a third of the earth. Uh, touch this, you can harm this, but leave a third. There's always a remnant that is saved and a remnant from all the tribes and kindred and tongue people and nations as well. But now it's different. The woes introducing the last three trumpets are more severe. This is basically, no, seriously. Now, <laughs> get ready. This is the end. Um, this, is, this is the final judgment. And so we have this, this scene of another mighty angel Another mighty angel uh, spoke to to John, and there's a lot of controversy over who this angel is. And I'll just speak for myself on this. I believe it's Christ. Uh, There are all sorts of good reasons to doubt that. Uh, You know, he's called an angel. Why not? Why not uh, the Son of Man or, you know, one of the other titles used of Jesus? But if you go back and look at other references that are clearly, everyone believes they refer to Christ, you see the, you see the same things. Traveling with the clouds, which also goes back to Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. First, the gospel must be preached in all nation, to all nations, and then the end will come. The Son of Man will come on the clouds of glory and gather the elect from the four corners of the earth, from Daniel 7. Uh, this is drawing on that same kind of, of picture. He's traveling with the clouds. We don't really hear about angels traveling with the clouds. We hear about Yahweh traveling with the clouds in the, in the wilderness uh, to be present with his people. Also, he's clad in a rainbow and that one is really what, what clinches it for me because he's sitting on a throne with a rainbow around him just as we see him also in chapter 4. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. That can't be an angel. 
And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So riding on the clouds, son of man, rainbow, God, what does the rainbow mean? Well, it, of course, we think of uh, Noah's flood, and um, God didn't invent the rainbow <laughs> with the flood. It was a meteorological phenomenon. You can describe it scientifically. But God commandeered it and said, every time I see that, I'm going to remember not to kill you all. Uh, it's like he needs a reminder. <laughs> uh, it's actually for our benefit that we know he remembers. He remembers not to kill us when things get really horrible. Uh, it's not time. Not until the gospel is preached to all nations and then the end will come. So here's the flood. And he says, when I see the rainbow, I will remember. What, what does that mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, rainbows were uh, uh, symbols of war. Um, you would see people on, uh, uh, in cave drawings um, put a, a, a draw a, a bow with an arrow pointing towards uh, the person who is taking an oath. So whenever an oath is made and you're recording it here, whoever the arrow is pointing to is the oath maker. And he is basically saying, blood be on my head. May that arrow pierce my heart if I don't fulfill this vow. And so what's interesting about the rainbow, why the rainbow? Because it is a bow pointed at God. It's not hanging. Usually when it's peacetime, there would be a symbol of a bow hanging uh, without an arrow in it. But here is a bow pointed towards God, God saying, I'm going to take, you know, talk about imprecation, I'm going to imprecate myself. I'm going to pronounce a curse on myself if I should fail to fulfill this vow. And so it's a, it's a sign of peace, right? It, the throne of peace, everlasting peace. All of this, all of this uh, war and strife and hatred of the people of God, but then you come to the throne, sea of glass, and you see the king seated on a throne with a bow behind him, remembering his promise. Um, that association with the rainbow, I think, also points to Jesus. Also, radiant face. Uh, so, uh, he had, you know, a face looked like the sun, and then also in chapter 1, Verse 16, we're told his uh, eyes were like the flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters, sort of like the roar of the Lion of Judah, very similar description. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. His legs, like bronze. Well, in chapter 10, uh, his legs are pillars of fire. And we'll explain what that means in just a moment. Uh, in both instances, he's holding a book. We know it's 
Christ in Revelation 5.8, who's holding a book, uh, who is worthy to open the seals. Why not here in chapter 10? Roars like a lion. So also in chapter 5, verse 5. Uh, swears by God uh, in verse 6 here of chapter 10. Um, that is really unique of uh, you know, God could swear by no one greater, Hebrews 6 tells us. God, since God could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying. And then has authority over land and sea. He was he has authority over land and sea. That's what the uh, that's what the pillars mean. Imagine this just gigantic figure in this vision, so gigantic that with one leg he stands on the land, and with the other leg he stands on the sea. That's authority, and it's not just authority. It's it's judgment. Pillars mean you know, judging at the pillars means this is a courtroom scene. He's, he's, he's coming to bring judgment. And further evidence of that is he is raising his right hand to heaven and swearing by God. In other words, the rainbow, the pillars, legs of pillars, raising his right hand to heaven and swearing, this is a covenant ratification ceremony. In this case, it's a covenant of judgment. It is, it is a part of the covenant of works. It is, a, it is a covenant of judgment that he's going to um, bring judgment upon the earth. These are the last three trumpets. And notice that he's standing on three sphere, in, in three spheres. He's covering three spheres, land, sea, and sky. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Seal up what the seven thunders have said. Another example, I think, that uh, uh, sort of underscores it's probably Christ. God has said, well, Christ has said at the beginning, write this down, right? Everything I show you, you write it down. Now he says, except for this, seal it up. Whatever the seven thunders are saying right now, don't communicate it. Don't tell anybody. So he has the authority to suspend the revelation to us. Uh, and I, I think that's something that only, only Christ can do. Um, why? Well, perhaps two verses later, because there's no more delay. In verse 6, no more delay. There, since there is no more delay... Uh, let's not sit around talking about what the seven thunders said. <laughs> the, the, the time of judgment has come. Um, and then verse 7, the mystery, the mystery of God. What is the mystery of God? But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Well, what he announced to the servants, the prophets, already clues us in that he's talking about something that's prophesied. Uh, so this is this is um, a mystery that has been revealed. 
And turn over just for a second to Ephesians. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's the mystery. To unite all things in him, whether in heaven or on earth. And then in chapter 3, he says the mystery that has now been revealed is that Jews and Gentiles are united in one body, the church. That that barrier between Jew and Gentile has been broken down in Jesus Christ. That's the mystery that has been revealed. Why is that important? Because the people to whom he's writing are suffering mainly as Jewish Christians being kicked out of the synagogue. And so it's a particular context that helps us to understand what this mystery is. Um, It's like the ceiling of the 144,000. Not to go over what Pastor Tedrick has already uh, done there, Um, but 12 times 12 times 1,000 is 144,000. I'm, I, I, I did that myself. Um, it's fullness times fullness times completion, complete fullness. In other words, this is 144,000 is not, the, not all there is. It's a, it's a fantastically small number compared to the real number of the elect. But this is people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and people. How do we know that? Well, he says right after 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, and he he doesn't go in order, you notice. He doesn't go in order of the tribes. Reuben is first. He starts with Judah. He gets them all mixed up. He confuses them all. You know, this one first, and the ones who came by harlots get top mention. Like, what on earth? This is not the usual Old Testament ranking. It's a sign of salvation has come to sinners. And then the very next verse is, after this I looked and behold a great multitude no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. This is not 144,000 Jewish people sealed during the tribulation. Um, certainly not what our Jehovah's Witness neighbors say when they come to our, come to our door. Uh, it is, again, a symbol of the whole body of Christ. And what a wonderful symbol it is. This is the mystery of God, the sealing of the elect from all nations between the period of Christ's ascension to the time of His return. What a promise, what a security given to the people of God as they're suffering. They're looking all around them. Their their family and friends are dropping like flies as martyrs. And they're wondering, this is not going to last. This is is over. 
No, he, he has sealed. They may be martyrs, but he has sealed his elect, and they are not going to, uh, they are, they are not going to be lost. And they're not going to endure these judgments. These are judgments that he, last three trumpets are the judgments that will happen any time now, he says, uh, and they will be poured out on the nations. And you have that bittersweet scroll. He takes the scroll, uh, is told to eat the scroll, and it's bittersweet. At first, he tastes it, and it's sweet, but then it becomes bitter in his stomach. And it becomes clearer as the scroll is, is executed, the prophecy of the scroll is executed, that it's good news and bad news. And he uses the formula, all nations, languages, tribes, and peoples, over and over again, for good and for bad. He is going to judge all nations, tribes, peoples, or all nations, tribes, peoples were arrayed against the people of God, or people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and people and nation are wrapped around the throne praising the Lamb. In in both cases, it's international. It's it's uh, it, there's an emphasis here. So many peoples and nations and languages and kings will receive this as judgment, but others will receive it as life. Again, the paradox of judgment and salvation. And then finally, you get to chapter 11, and uh, I know I'm going kind of quickly over this, but um, the measuring rod and the staff to measure the temple. Okay, so this is often interpreted as evidence for the literal rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem. The first thing we have to say when people, our brothers and sisters, bring that up um, is, is you know, how, how much do you want to hold on to the book of Hebrews? <laughs> um, because we really have to take the book of Hebrews out of the canon. If a temple, is literal temple, is going to be rebuilt and they're going to be re-sacrificing um, in the temple, now we're basically rewinding the movie. We've hit the climax, the credits are going up, and we're rewinding it, going back to the middle of the movie, to the shadows. We're going back to the trailer. Um, no, it is, full, it is fulfilled. Not a literal temple in Jerusalem, but John is called to measure the worshipers. The, it, the people are the temple. It is the temple made without hands, the temple we read about throughout the uh, prophets as they're anticipating this is the mystery of God, the temple made of Jew and Gentile, the, the, the uh, living stones being taken uh, uh, and built into a, a common house, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2. Um, in fact... John is told not to measure the court outside the temple, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, again, you're like, these, these 
numbers are all symbolic. And here, 42 months in chapter 3, verse 15, 1,260 days in chapter 11 and again in chapter 12, and a time, times, and half a time in 12, verse 14 are all the same time period, the same duration, 42 months. Um, 42 months or three and a half years, um, 1,260 days. So it all, it's, the only difference is whether it's days, months, or years. It's, 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 uh, in other words, a relatively brief period, that's the point that's being made, a relatively brief period of martyrdom compared to the glory that is to follow. That this is only three and a half, I mean, not that this is, this is, you know, insignificant, but we're talking about three and a half years versus the number a thousand, for example. A thousand years, that's, a, that, that's symbolic of a, of a much longer period of time. This is a relatively short period of time, and what is shocking here is the earthly Jerusalem now, now is a state of the great whore Babylon. Sadly, it, it is here, it's not as in the sermon, Israel being, being um, attacked and overrun and, and destroyed by the nations. Here, the true Israel of God, the true people of God are Jew and Gentile believers. And the earthly Jerusalem is persecuting the church. The earthly Jerusalem is Babylon. How do we know that? Well, sadly, he says, and when they have finished their testimony, the two witnesses representing the whole church, because everything is by two, right? On the authority of two or more witnesses in Deuteronomy. And then they were sent out by Jesus two by two. Two witnesses, the church going out, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Can you imagine calling Jerusalem Sodom? And Egypt, that's what it says, Symbol- that great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. And so their, their own relatives are turning them in. Uh, it, if you think about what's actually going on on the ground here, it make, makes perfect sense. Go back to chapter 3, if we had time we'd look at uh, chapter three. But remember uh, what is said to the to the church. I believe it's of Philadelphia, talking about uh, they say they're they're a, a church, but they're no church of the the synagogue of Satan. Um, and that is the synagogue that's persecuting the church. Not all synagogues necessarily, but the synagogue that it persecutes the the church, the synagogue that 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 the apostle Paul belonged to before he was 
the Apostle Paul uh, doing that, what he was doing to the church, persecuting the church. That's, that, he wasn't alone. That part of, of, of the synagogue is called the synagogue of Satan in chapter 3, and here it's called Sodom and Egypt. There's no rebuilding of a literal temple in Jerusalem. It's Sodom and Egypt, symbolically, which means that it's just part of the world. It's just part of the Babylon, the great city of man that will be destroyed so that whatever can be shaken will be shaken. Um, So once the saints have proclaimed this gospel, they will be killed. They'll be laying in the streets. No one will be allowed to bury them. This is exactly what happened to the early Christians. Didn't have the protection of Jewish laws. Rome would, Rome would let Jews not have to participate in the, in the Roman cult because they have this ancient law. But the Christians say we're, we're saved by grace, not by the law. So they don't have the law to, to fall back on. Um, they have no excuse. They're hanging out there by themselves and their own family members are turning them in. Um, trampled. Trampled, um, crucified, um, killed. They will, they will be killed, but it's just three and a half days. Just three and a half days. Horrible massacres. Horrible martyrdom. But it's three and a half days. Now he's talking specifically about the early church, the martyrdoms of the early church, preparing the people, assuring them that God still has sealed His elect, the symbolic 144,000. He has still sealed His elect. He will save them. He will deliver them after this short period of martyrdom. But it still applies to us. I mean, I think of my brothers and sisters in India and in the Middle East and uh, in many other places where they are, they are under the cross, they're suffering. Uh, tremendous persecution. If you're, if you're baptized uh, in India, in many places now, if, uh, when you're baptized, the people in your village can kill you. And the, the police won't do anything about it. Um, if you, if, if, uh, if, if uh, you know, at, at weddings, Christian weddings, they have to have Christian weddings underground because if they had them above ground, they would... Uh, the police themselves would come in and kill them. I mean, it's, it's getting really bad. Uh, many parts of the world where, where our brothers and sisters are suffering and facing martyrdom. Uh, so this is still true. This is still going on, but it's three and a half years. It'll end. It won't be that long compared to a thousand years, symbolically. Okay, for, then, then we close, close with the, the words of uh, verses 14 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. No more two kingdoms. <laughs> one. Finally, there will be one kingdom. 
And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So he's already reigning. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. For destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And that is a great prelude to the vision of the woman and the dragon that we'll talk about next week. Any questions or? <laughs> yeah. So this, this, it all makes perfect sense, right? It's... No, I think I, I think Luther got his um, anti-Semitism from from medieval Germany. <laughs> I mean, it was just uh, Middle Ages very anti-Semitic, and Germany was more th- than most. Um, and then he also he wrote a tract for um, um, to try to call focusing on ethnic Jews to embrace the gospel. And he said, no wonder Jews have not embraced the gospel the way we've treated them. Why would they? Why would they become Christians? And so he has this really beautiful, winsome track to say, now is the hour of salvation. It's grace. You know, you just hear about works, 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 and it's just like your, your Torah. There's no liberation. There's no salvation or freedom. And uh, he thinks that they're now going to turn. This is the time when Romans 9 through 11 will be fulfilled. That after the partial hardening of Israel, all the Gentile elect will come in, and then there will be this great influx of of Jews into the kingdom of Christ. He believed that that was going to happen Thursday. It was imminent. That was his eschatology. When it didn't, he got mad <laughs> and wrote some really horrible stuff. Um, so it was always, at, at, least, at least in the stuff that people point out, the horrible things he said, it wasn't anti-Semitism as much as it was anti-Jewish religion. It, uh, it wasn't, you know, an ethnic slur. It was, it was how could they? <laughs> God has given them a chance now, and how could they? So it's too bad. Um, it's a horrible blight on the, the memory of a great man. But yeah, I mean, there's, when you read, you know, John, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, and the Jews, and the Jews, it's always the Jews. Uh, and so a lot of people say, well, that's anti-Semitic, but it's not. It's, he, John is a Jew. He's, he's distinguishing between the different actors, the different players in the, in the scenes. Um, but uh, 
yeah, it's a, you have to be careful how you handle texts like this, that, that you don't, uh, you know, make it sound, uh, basically what, he, what, what, what Christ is telling John is, Israel's no different from the world. It's not Israel's worst, or Jerus- the earthly Jerusalem is worse than the world. It's just that it's, it is the world. It's part of the world. Tragically, it's no longer um, a um, geopolitical nation that has God's blessing any more than any other nation. But it's not any worse. <laughs> Does that make sense? Any other questions or comments or allegations? All right. Thank you for uh, your time. We'll pick up at the Woman and the Dragon next week.